did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter, including references to sexual assault. Please take care. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bikram's beginning yoga class to kill yourself for next 90 minutes. If I have never understood the appeal of hot yoga. Here's a little secret. I am claustrophobic, and so spending a bunch of time in a dark room with the walls of heat closing in on me, no thank you. But I know millions of people love it, swear by it. Full lungs, bring your chin down more. Hot yoga was popularized in the 1970s by an eccentric yogi named Bikram Chowdhury. And at the height of his popularity, there were more than a thousand studios worldwide. Bikram yoga was not just a lifestyle, but a multi-million dollar business. And for close to a decade, reporter Julia Lowry Henderson was a devoted follower. But today, the name Bikram and the 26 poses that he trademarked is a lot less shiny. Teachings. Now a new lawsuit filed this month has a half dozen women accusing him of sexual assault. Because at the base of Bikram, there was a dark and insidious lie. For so long, you had watched this very uncomfortable and overly sexualized dynamic emerge. And it was a community where consent had been completely obliterated and blurred on purpose. In her 30 for 30 podcast, Julia explores that lie and the yoga community that defended an alleged rapist. Julia, welcome to Crime Story. Thank you for having me. So basically until the scandal sort of around Bikram blew up, I actually thought that Bikram was a type of hot yoga. I didn't really know that it was a man himself. But Now I know through your podcast and through the scandal that he was a real force, obviously. So can you tell me about who Bikram was or who people thought he was before things sort of started to fall apart? Yes. uh, Before things started to fall apart, he was seen as a yoga guru to the stars. He had come from India in the early 70s. He set up shop in Beverly Hills with the help of Shirley MacLaine. First day I came here, she put me Johnny Carson show. I don't know who is Johnny. Everywhere, every magazine, every magazine. I'm the cover page, first day from Time, Life, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you name it, everywhere. He quickly attracted all sorts of celebrities, including Quincy Jones. He's 
thanked in the liner notes of Thriller. Um, Keir Delay, like, or Delay, I always get his name wrong from Space <laughs> Odyssey. Like, he was on The Tonight Show. He was on The Merv Griffin Show. Joining our panel right now is the man who shaped up more celebrity bodies than any exercise instructor. He is Los Angeles' most prominent yoga master to the stars. Would you welcome Bikram Chaudhary. He was this little bundle of energy who claimed to have been deputized by his guru in India and who had a really kind of magical story as to why the heat. So his story, as he told it, was that he had had a weightlifting accident. He was supposed to have been an Olympic level weightlifter. And he had a weightlifting accident that basically crushed his knees. My left leg was crushed 100,000 pieces. Dust. Everybody said, I have to cut my leg off. I don't want to live with one leg. So my guru said, you tried everything? I said, yes. Come back tomorrow morning, six o'clock. He healed himself through yoga. And he came up with this series of 26 postures and two breathing exercises done in the heat as the ultimate way to make a one-stop shop of yoga for everyone that would fix every body type, heal every ailment, be good universally. So I told my guru, rest of my life, I go around the world and I had to fix bad knees and bad legs. The yoga became very popular in the States. Uh, in by the late 90s, early 2000s, he really got into the realm of franchising at the time when yoga was really taking off. Um, until then, it had been pretty tightly guarded. You kind of had to go to him in Los Angeles to get it. Uh, to get trained by him was a lot harder to do. And then to get any sort of blessing to open something with his name was a lot harder. But by the early 2000s, he sort of went whole hog into how popular it was, saw his potential, and it just took off. It's Eastern mind over body discipline meets Western obsession with fitness. A booming business, Bikram Inc. And at that point, his name became synonymous with hot yoga. There was no difference. No one else dared try it. If it was hot, it was his. It was his 26 postures. And it became this thing that Bikram was a thing, not necessarily a man, but it was always this man. And can we talk a bit about what his class was like? So he was pretty strict about what happened in that 90 minutes. Yes, it was uh, incredibly strict. It, uh, In order to even have the 90 minutes, you had to be trained and certified by him. You had to be doing it in a studio that was approved by him. And that particular yoga is the only thing you could teach and you could only hire people who had his approval, right? So all of those things had to be checked off before you could even have a 90-minute class. The 90-minute class was not only the same 26 postures. It starts with a breathing exercise. There are 26 postures that ends with a breathing exercise. They are always done in the same order. There are two sets of everything. It lasts 90 minutes. And you have to use his dialogue. And you have to listen to the dialogue. You have to understand meaning of the dialogue. You have to apply the meaning of the dialogue to a particular body part. When I said... So at some point along the line, uh, Bikram basically just transcribed the way he taught the class and the postures, and that got memorialized into something that Bikram Studios and Teachers dubbed the dialogue. That's what you go to teacher training to learn. You memorize it. You have to prove that you have it memorized, and you have to use the dialogue to teach the class. If you 
throw in a third set or you skip a posture or you turn things around or you don't use the dialogue, you risk losing your accreditation and the right to teach or practice Bikram. What did you like about it? To me, it sounds torturous, but what did you enjoy? You did it for a while. So what was it that everybody loved so much? I did it for a very long time. Um, I'm a pretty intense person in terms of um, like that a discipline and physical activity. I tend to be very, I need something intense. Uh, part of it is for focus. Like I needed something that was so challenging that it was the only thing I could be worried about. I also needed, um, I'm, I'm working on this in other areas of my life, but that thing of, you know, needing to put in a lot of effort to feel like you did something, like it scratched that box for me. Um, and I also, I came to all of this. I mean, I have a BFA in theater. Uh, and so when I found this, I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, and I needed something I don't know, being a young adult and not focusing on my body and my instrument all the time was just an adjustment. And this was something where in 90 minutes, you know, I'm constantly being reminded by the dialogue, like how good this is for me and what I'm doing for myself and the fact that it's a moving meditation and all of that combined with how intense it was sort of checked a lot of boxes for like my particular personality. You mentioned stars at the top, but I mean, he really was in with the stars like Shirley MacLaine practically made him, right? Like, we're talking serious Hollywood royalty that got involved with him. Yes. I mean, in the podcast, I spoke with Justine Bateman. She and her brother were taken there as young kids because their parents are both in the business or business adjacent. And it was a place to socialize and meet people. I mean, almost everyone in the room had a connection to the entertainment industry. Uh, to this day, you know, he's probably proudest of his relationship with Quincy Jones, um, but yeah, I mean, and he, I don't know if it's fully true or not, but his origin story is that, well, first of all, he met Shirley MacLaine on a beach in Mumbai, and that's where they first hit it off, and she insisted he come to the United States. He's always credited her, as do other people in his orbit, with being the one who convinced him he needed to charge for classes. Uh, rumor has it at first he had a little donation bin out, and she was like, that's not the American way, and hyped him to capitalism. Um, again, I take every origin story with a grain of salt. And of course, you know, he famously tells the story of having cured Richard Nixon in a bathtub in Hawaii after a flare-up of phlebitis uh, with yoga and water and heat. So after that, he lived 24 years. He never remembered which leg was the bad one. I never even applied for a green card. The green card was gift from Nixon. So, yeah, his whole brand is based on celebrities, trust me. So you should, too. Yeah. And and one of the things that really struck me in the podcast was when Justine Bateman and Jason Bateman talk about brushing his hair and massaging his feet. You would get picked to come give him a little shoulder massage while everybody was, you know, getting settled in. So that always felt like a, I don't know, a nice thing to get, like, picked. Like, oh, it's your turn to go up and give his shoulders a little work. That was normal, quote-unquote normal, in the classes. But that will get us to the problems.
when do things start to kind of turn? What's the first indication that there's something not great going on? It does depend who you ask. I mean, I spoke to people who were afraid to record interviews or go on the record, but there seems to have been some abuse back in the earliest of days. Um, I've heard allegations of rape going back to his earliest days. Uh, But in terms of a noticeable shift in kind of his universe and like the yoga itself, it really starts to come into play in the late 90s, early 2000s as he launches what he calls teacher training. It's like that that thing of having amassed a bunch of followers that have created something that was very popular and had the potential to be infinitely popular. Uh, at that point, he realized he needed a way to both spread it. So he needed people who could teach it and he needed people he could trust to open studios in his name and likeness. And instantly the need to do those two things created a need for control uh, and sort of set his narcissism in motion in a way where it was always about power and the money flowing back up to him. And from the get-go, those manifested in varying degrees of abusive behaviors. You know, at first, it really seems to have been a lot more like mind control, truly more cult-like abusive behaviors. You know, that he would shut down people's studios. People would spend their life savings to open something at the last moment. He would tell them they couldn't. His whole teacher training styles, nine weeks of sleep deprivation, and a lot of like forced obedience meant to break you, which he is not shy about. Like that was never something that was hidden. It was overtly the purpose of it. When you are 20 pound overweight, I cannot tell you you are in good shape. I got to tell you, you have 20 pound overweight on your face and you have to lose it. And if you think I'm insulting you, it's your problem. And I don't care because that's why you came to me. That's why you pay for it. I must tell you the truth. It does seem that as... Around 2004 or five, when teacher training started to get to a point where they were so large that he couldn't host them at his largest studio in L.A., which he called headquarters, um, he started doing them twice a year in hotels. And that really was the point of no return. At this point, it's hundreds of students coming at once. They essentially take over a hotel. He often is staying in the penthouse of the hotel or some other suite in the hotel. It is, you know, there are late night lectures. There are late night movies. There are just no boundaries. And that that seems to have been the final kind of nail in the coffin in terms of keeping students safe from him. He's now living among them. He's calling on them to come watch a movie with him late at night. He's calling on them to massage him or brush his hair while he's doing that. And that's where uh, the kind of documented pattern of sexual assault and grooming really blossoms and becomes like uh, just an accepted, quiet uh, reality of him Mm -hmm. and his world. And you really hear it, uh, and forgive me, I forget her name, but the woman who he starts to get to massage, you know, his feet and then move up his leg, and she's telling you this whole time that she's uncomfortable. She's aware that this isn't something she wants, but she feels this control over her and this inability to not do it. At one point, he is telling me to massage, like, right 
up in his groin. Eventually, I'm feeling his testicles. And, um, you know, he's talking about it's really important to get the, the perineum massaged. And um, it releases a lot of tension and it's really healthy for you. As much as in my head, I'm screaming like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, this is not good. You need to leave. I just couldn't. If I leave, he's going to kick me off of being staff. Yes. Uh, and that's something I heard a lot. I will say that I never went to teacher training, but I still knew. I mean, we sent a couple of people every training at least to go get trained. It was expected. I mean, talk about like a pyramid scheme. If you own a studio and you're not feeding the training machine, you're in trouble. Um, we all knew. It was no secret that he made or called on or asked uh, trainees, mostly young women. I don't think I ever heard of anyone that was not a woman, uh, brush his hair and massage him. And although that is a bizarre thing to think about, it becomes so normalized so fast that it's a grooming technique that works in both directions. Like it just completely annihilates the questioning in the room. It makes everybody complicit. Hundreds of other trainees are watching this behavior happen. And it's broken down the barrier uh, or the physical barrier between a trainee and their guru. And then when you become a target, as you know, I, we hear from Janelle Leet at the end of episode three, who is able to stop before she gets assaulted. And then Jill Lawler in episode four, who was repeatedly assaulted by Bikram. You know, once you get called on to do the thing, you're now on the other side of the grooming and you don't have a choice because Everybody else around you believes that it's okay for you to be doing this thing. And if you do anything to stop it or you question it or you you stand up, you are now going to be kicked out. You're going to be ostracized. And for all of these people, you know, the power dynamic is insane. You're talking about young women and their 60-something-year-old guru who purports himself as, you know, the star protege of Yogananda's brother. I mean, it, there's probably no higher yoga lineage to run around touting uh, than that. Most yeah. people who you don't even have to practice yoga to know autobiography of a yogi. Um, and people have spent their life savings or depleted college funds in order to go to this thing. And so that that inequity and that power dynamic just gets exploited and, you know, it can become a really impossible situation. And it did for a lot of people. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. You do such a good job of taking us into the community and the fissures that appear, but also the internal conflicts that people in the community had at the time and continue to have. 
uh, because they believe in this so much. When does that start to become clear that things are actually going to be ripping apart, that he's admitted to the massaging and the hair, he's denied claims that he raped anybody, but can you tell me that what happened, like where that happened in the community, that things started to kind of put people on either side of that? It did not happen until after the women started coming forward. For a long time, um, you know, at the end of episode three, Janelle talks about she was on staff at teacher training. She went and told the head of training staff the next morning what had happened or that she had been stuck in his room all night. And she was given a very clear message of that's why you can't go to his room alone. The number of people that either knew or suspected is somewhat appalling. There was just a, we can manage this, just don't let young women be solo with him, and we'll hopefully escape the worst of it. Uh, when Sarah Bond was the first person to come forward, and then in quick succession, Larissa Anderson and others started coming forward, Jill Lawler was actually the last of the six women to come forward and accuse him. It set I mean, this is how I ended up actually feeling compelled to do this story is instead of um, a universal or a near universal, like, we knew this was coming, let's deal with it reaction. It really divided the community. And at first, most people wanted to protect Bikram, wanted to discredit the accusations, it was hard for a lot of people to come to terms with. And you hear some of them grapple with this in the podcast. And I appreciate their willingness to own this or try to explain this. But, you know, for so long, you had watched this very uncomfortable and overly sexualized dynamic emerge. And so it was very easy for them to dismiss this as people who had asked for this or who had wanted this or who had somehow given consent, even though they were telling you very clearly they never gave consent. Um, and it was a community where the consent had been completely obliterated and blurred on purpose. You know, for a long time, the community had been told, separate the man from the yoga. That's what you were meant to do when he was trying to steal your peace, when he was verbally abusing you in class, when he was saying mean things. All of these things are part of his shtick and accepted. And it was meant to be a mental test. It was another facet of the yoga. You need, it's up to you to maintain your peace. It's up to you to, like, put up with this. Like, and... It makes you stronger to do that. And so, and it was always separate the man from the yoga. That was that was tied to that part of existing in his world and putting up with him as a teacher and a guru. And that then became the question that came back to the community once these accusations were out in public. And once it became clear that they're, they weren't going to necessarily go away, that, you know, outlets like ABC were picking up on it and talking about it. And then this question did emerge, you know, can you keep the name Bikram? Can you keep the yoga? And can you just separate yourself from him? Can he be a bad guy and a fallible human being? Um, and that turned out to be a very hard question and a very tricky question. Um, and I think a question that honestly, the community is still grappling with. Everything you're saying is so reminiscent of a cult and the idea that you make a decision about whether you're the victim or not. It sounds so similar. I mean, do they use the cult word with Bikram? 
some people do editorially. I was very conscious not to uh, and to use cult like only because I didn't want and this is maybe not fair to audiences, but I do feel like there there can be a distancing that happens once you introduce the word cult. Like it's easy to dismiss those people who will follow something like that. It's easy to dismiss that belief system. And I didn't want to give people that out. Uh, also already knowing that the idea of hot yoga and Bikram yoga, it's a bizarre thing to understand. I mean, that was editorially maybe our biggest challenge was, you know, making sure to build a world where you understood the universality of what these people wanted and why they might have fallen in love with this practice or even this person or why they would have needed it, why they would have been convinced that teaching it or opening a studio would have made a difference in their lives and other people's lives. That was that was a pretty high bar with how odd some of it is and how like completely terrible training was and he is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's incredibly cult-like. Uh, it's complete groupthink. Coercive control. Yeah, very coercive control. The accusations went way beyond giving somebody a massage when they didn't want to. He's been accused of raping women. Yes. Uh, was he ever charged? Where Where does that go? He was never charged. Um, I mean... The accusations started coming out in February of 2013. This is obviously three to four years pre-Me Too. Uh, This is Los Angeles. At the time, the DA is Jackie Lacey, who lost her last election and who has quite a track record of having not gone after powerful men accused of rape and assault. Um, It really feels very much of that era, the response to this. Uh, There were all sorts of challenges, you know, in some cases, a lot of time had passed. In some cases, there are questions about statutes of limitations. From everything I've seen, there seems to have been an, an inability for law enforcement to understand the relationship between yogis and their guru in a way that doesn't imply consent, right? And so it just was not handled well at all from a law enforcement perspective. He's very wealthy. He's very well connected. And then, of course, you know, when there were not charges being pressed, civil suits started popping up. And civil suits are like the death knell in a lot of cases for any sort of legal action, right? Because they're seen as prejudicial. It's easy for defense attorneys to spin them as though the person only wants money. And it's permissible for them to do that in court. So no one goes near that stuff. Um, this all got further complicated by the fact that a woman named Mickey Jaffa Bowden, who had come in very late in the game, I think even after the accusations had started to come forward, to become a, an interim CEO as his empire was starting to like frizzle, she ended up suing him for wrongful termination and sexual harassment. And hers is the only civil suit he's actually stood trial for. She was awarded a huge sum of money. More than $7 million awarded to one victim. I feel vindicated. I'm elated. Attorney Mickey Jaffa Baden. My professional relationship ended when I was fired by Mr. Chowdhury. Jaffa Baden was general counsel to Bikram's Yoga College of India. She convinced the jury the 69-year-old yoga guru repeatedly sexually harassed her and subjected her to obscene comments about women. 
But she claimed she was fired after she started to investigate other women's allegations of sexual harassment and rape. It's very complicated. She's the only one that has really seen a penny and her getting to court screwed everyone else's cases. Like, it's a very complicated situation, but it does feel like there was a misperception of it publicly. There still is a misperception. Like, there's this sense of like, oh, well, he had his day in court in a civil case and a jury ruled against him. And it it certainly felt, I mean, I've read the transcripts of that trial. It feels like he was sitting on that stand for everything he had done to his survivors, not for what he did to Mickey. And so there was a sense of like, oh, yeah, here's a six, seven million dollar settlement against this guy. Like, that's justice. Like, you're you're done, Bikram Chowdhury. But that was not that was not actually justice for anyone who had been harmed by him. And I'm going to get to where he is now because I think that's really important. But I do want to ask, you went to India. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kolkata. The outside temperature is 26 degrees Celsius. Which is incredible to do some of your own investigation. So not only did you investigate the claims of sexual assault and speak to a lot of his victims, but you found out about his real origin story. So what's the real story of Bikram? (laughs) Uh, The real story of Bikram is he grew up in Calcutta, um, and he does seem to have started as a teenager to train with a local uh, guru by the name of Bishnu Ghosh. Uh, Bishnu Ghosh is Yogananda's brother. Very, very different people, uh, and I believe quite an age gap as well, but Bishnu Ghosh, uh, and I apologize for collapsing a lot of like culture and history here, but essentially he was part of a movement in Calcutta that was looking to use the physical arts and yoga in a way to reclaim uh, national pride. India is still belongs to, is colonized and belongs to England at this point. And Bishnu Ghosh had Ghosh's Yoga College of India. Uh, there was yoga being practiced there. There was weightlifting. There was all sorts of stuff. Bikram actually seems to have been a very good masseuse. He's a small guy. It's not like he was, you know, I mean, when you look back at some of the things he claimed about himself and the fact that we all believe them so readily, it's a little funny because he's just not built like someone that would have been like a big weightlifting champion. Um, I mean, Vishnu Ghosh trained a lot of Mr. Indias and Mr. Worlds, like people who were legitimately power lifters. Um, And they didn't look like Bikram. No, not at all. (laughs) Uh, Bikram was very good friends with Vishnu's son. And Bikram went as a last minute addition in a yoga troupe to Japan because somebody couldn't go. And so... He was trained at the last second to be able to go teach, practice some yoga, but he was never an exceptional yogi by any standards. No one in that circle remembers him. You know, I talked to someone who's now unfortunately since died, but was a student of Vishnu Ghosh's and knows that Bikram was not his star yogi as as Bikram pret- pretends. I mean, Bikram poaches every story about himself 
is just a copy from somewhere else. So there's always a story like he's kicking a ball, lands at the feet of a man. It turns out to be his guru, their match forever. I mean, that's actually that's a story Yogananda tells in a different context. You know, he's just he's very good at taking other people's stories uh, and making them his. It does seem that he claims to have conceived of Bikram Yoga uh, while he was in Japan. Uh, he does sometimes credit older women who were cold with bringing heaters into class and that being the light bulb moment for him. He did go from Japan to Hawaii and he did seemingly make himself of use to a very wealthy couple in Hawaii who owned a bunch of hotels. And she he always calls her his Japanese mother and they do seem to be the people who sponsored him uh, in many ways to get his early footing. In terms of the 26 postures and the heat, there are other disciplines of yoga that used heat before him. Uh, those 26 postures are not his. I mean, there are people who remember doing something very close to that before he could have, would have spread it. It all really, truly is a lie in marketing. Like he saw potential in something and he marketed it really, really well. He did not invent anything. So while you were in India, you actually get a chance to talk to him. Unfortunately, not audio. We didn't hear it, but I was enraptured by it. So please tell us what that was all like. Yeah, I I mean, I had tried frequently and constantly for, you know, a year and a half to get him to talk to me and had no, had no luck until I was in India and he was hearing that I was in India. He was in Acapulco leading a teacher training at the time. And I also reached out once again to start putting to him some of what I was learning uh, and putting to him some of the people I was talking to because I knew the names would register. And I also was not surprised to learn when I did meet him that a lot of those people were just immediately turning around and telling him that I was there and asking questions. Uh, so I got home from India uh, on a Friday, I was very, very sick, and I finally got an email saying I could come on Tuesday, I believe it was, to meet him in Acapulco. Uh, I was still like on Gatorade and crackers <laughs> when I got on the plane, and he agreed to meet with me to determine whether he wanted to actually do the interview, so... I went up to his suite. I was taken up to his suite. His kids were there. A couple of other people that were involved in the training were there. He was Bikram in every sense of the word. He was wearing like a fishnet mesh black shirt and pants. And he just launched in immediately with like raunchy jokes. Like he joked about me being able to sit next to him because I wasn't going to sue him for salt. Like, I mean, it was just tasteless from the beginning. I mean, he degraded women who have come forward against him. Um, he has no filter and no one around him tells him to stop. Uh, he kept talking until he was already late for their, you know, evening lecture. And as he bounded on the stage for that, I was given a time when we could meet for an interview the next morning. At that time, I was met by his daughter and told that the lawyers had said he couldn't do an interview, which was greatly disappointing to me. But 
I mean, I understand why they wouldn't let him talk because he doesn't. I mean, who knows what he would have said to me. Um, then I immediately got on a plane and left. Uh, you know, it's all very talk about culty. Like I just kept being reminded by him, by his kids, by the people speaking on his behalf, how I'm really I'm only there because I'm part of the family and you never really leave the family and I'm welcome to come practice with all the students. And it was just like super creepy, uncomfortable. Uh, within days of that visit, he filed for bankruptcy. An arrest warrant issued for a famous fitness expert, a master at yoga known around the world. The founder of Bikram Yoga, accused of hiding assets and now fleeing the country amid allegations of sex assault. And that was a pretty obvious move to avoid. At that point, he was existing exclusively outside of the United States because there was a bench warrant. And there was a lot of misunderstanding about the bench warrant. The bench warrant is really, at this point, there are a bunch of open civil suits, not just from sexual assault survivors, but uh, former employees were coming after him for back pay and harassment and abuse. And he was notoriously terrible at filing things on time or making court dates. And he was very intentionally not uh, doing anything to deal with the multi-million dollar settlement with Mickey Jaffa Bowden. So that those things came to a point where some judge issued a bench warrant and there was a lot of like, oh, if he comes back, he's going to get arrested. And it's really just bureaucratic red tape. It's not really much of anything. Um, but bankruptcy is an easy way out of all of it. You know, he was shuttling his cars around in the middle of the night so that they couldn't be seized. Like he had a fake you know, essentially a divorce on paper with Raja Shri to pretend as though he had no more assets, even though anyone that knows Raja Shri is like, oh, she didn't get the money. She's living in a crap apartment, like, you know, in Hollywood. And it sat in bankruptcy for a really long time, like a bizarrely long time. Uh, then obviously the pandemic happened. And this whole time, he's not living in the United States anymore, right? He took off. Yeah. So he had, he was mostly in India, uh, He'd mostly go back to Kolkata. Uh, he had done some teacher trainings in Thailand. Seems like maybe he burned a bridge there. He's he's notorious for dining and dashing. He's always done this. Like he will have like his training and then he won't pay the hotel. You know, he just that's been a thing of his forever. So I think he did that in Thailand, which is how he ended up doing teacher trainings in Acapulco. I was there in November of 2017. There was one in the spring. And then the last one in Acapulco was the fall of 2018. Uh, very tragically, and a very unresolved storyline is that there was a woman from S Scotland who was, I believe, in her early 60s who died during that training. Mm -hmm. She got sick. And they there's a lot of questions about when they took her to the hospital or didn't. Um, you would think that might be the thing that shut down training. It actually wasn't. He was in the middle of dining and dashing on that hotel. And the hotel, like, cracked down and basically, like, locked all the students in because they'd all paid him, but he hadn't paid them. So that was the end of his training in Acapulco. Training stopped for a moment and then also stopped because of the pandemic. Uh, he posted a few times from the pandemic. It was clear he was in Kolkata. Uh and then this spring, in March of 2023, he finally exited bankruptcy. Um, and a group 
that is based out of both the U.S. and India called the KPC Group bought everything associated with Bikram Yoga, and he is back running teacher trainings. He ran one this spring in Thailand, and he's set to start one. Maybe it's already going. I haven't been brave enough to check their account. Um, but yeah, it's scheduled for there to be a fall teacher training in Thailand. With all of this happened that you know about the investigation, basically there being no real sort of backlash to him, how do you think about the work you did and what actually happened versus the results? That's such a good question. Um, I think I separate and compartmentalize these things a little bit. Uh, I would lie if I didn't admit that it's just completely infuriating and heartbreaking to watch a group buy him out of bankruptcy and put him back on a stage and put him around people. Uh, it's even more heartbreaking to watch Bikram loyalists crawl from the shadows like back towards him. There are a lot of people who it seems like very fakely distanced themselves until this blew over. Um, and it really just sucks to watch it blow over. I do think, though, that the brand of Bikram is not what it was. It will never be what it was. I do think that all of the reporting that's been done around this has raised questions, not just about him, uh, but about the power dynamics with gurus, the way we elevate them. Um, there have been other people coming forward in other disciplines of yoga shining a light on this. I mean, I spoke to someone in the podcast who, you know, was just made the point to me that this is so rampant everywhere. This is like sadly a very baked in dynamic and something that a lot of teachers and gurus have taken advantage of. Um, so I think it did a lot of good in that respect. And I do think the timing of the actual reporting and the storytelling, you know, as I as I said earlier, when women came forward, it was very much in a 2013 pre-Me Too world with all sorts of doubt and really stunted conversations about consent, about assault, uh, about grooming, about all of these things. And I am and was proud of committing to telling a story at a time when the world and those conversations were shifting that really tried to center survivors in a different way and to treat them in a different way uh, and to try to show the humanity and the complexities of these groups, uh, of people who believe in things like this, of you know people who get ca caught up in this and the human kind of messy side of what a reckoning looks like. Um, may ultimately be sad with how far the reckoning did or didn't go. Um, but I do, I, I feel like you have to have your head pretty far in the sand to pretend that Bikram is okay and to not know what he's about at this point in time. So I appreciate the work. I think you did an amazing job. I loved your podcast and I want people to know that there's so much more to the story we just couldn't get into this interview, and it's complex, and, and the community is so interesting. 
Um, But thanks for your work and thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel or by subscribing to the CBC Podcasts True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Additional audio from News World India, ESPN, NBC, ABC, CNN, and 60 Minutes. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager, and Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.